As we begin this morning, let me ask you a question. Are you blessed? Are you blessed? Are you hashtag blessed? Are you living the hashtag blessed life this morning? My wife and I took a look at Instagram and Facebook this week as I was studying for this sermon. We searched the hashtag blessed and blessed life. It was a fascinating study. What was fascinating about it was to see how much of a phenomenon this is. And it isn't just American. The hashtag blessed or hashtag blessed life phenomenon is a worldwide phenomenon. We saw posts by simply searching hashtag blessed on Instagram from India, from the Middle East, from South America, from Europe, from people who don't even speak English. An entire post in another language and then hashtag blessed. And what do you think were in the pictures with that label, blessed, blessed life? It was things like, look at my new outfit, looking good, feeling good, hashtag blessed. Look at my new apartment, my new house, my new my new motorcycle, hashtag blessed. Look at my idyllic, ideal life, everyone, hashtag Blessed. Look at my delicious meal, my beautiful date, my significant other. Hashtag blessed. Now, I'm not drawing attention to this social media phenomenon to address any particular individuals here. This is not some veiled swipe at individuals that I am in a passive-aggressive manner trying to <laughs> deal with. I, I, I literally saw none of you when I made that search. And I'm not saying that everyone who uses that hashtag is using it in a necessarily bad or worldly way. In fact, we should, if we are Christians and we are blessed, declare to that is true. It may be we mean by that description that we are blessed simply that we are giving God glory for some of his good gifts, something that we should do. The Apostle Paul tells us, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, that we should do all for the glory of God, and that all of the gifts that come to us in this life are not ultimately from us, but from God, and we should give Him the praise and the glory, seeing them as good blessings from Him. But I fear that the phenomenon that is hashtag blessed too often communicates that a miscommunicates what is the biblical notion and idea of blessing. I fear that this phenomenon miscommunicates what it means to be blessed and to have God's blessing. I think often when people say hashtag blessed in their social media point, they are saying something like, Hey, look at me. I must be doing something right to deserve such material blessings. Or maybe it's a a shout out to God or their gods or just the universe. A shout out to try to keep these good blessings, these material things coming. 
to keep the cash flowing. It has become a new kind of humble brag, bragging. Look at me. Look at my best life now while pretending to be humble and to acknowledge that this came from God. But I think the scariest thing about this phenomenon is that it sees material prosperity as a sign of God's favor or pleasure. It sees simply material, temporary prosperity as a sign of God's favor and pleasure. When in actual fact, When we look at how the Bible talks about blessing, this often isn't the case. In fact, it's often the opposite of that. And in our passage this morning, it is material, temporal prosperity that is actually a sign of God's displeasure, a sign of a lack of blessing. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 6. The book of Luke, chapter 6, in the New Testament. We are in a study of the Gospel of Luke, and today we find ourselves in Luke, chapter 6, with Jesus and his Sermon on the Mount. In the book of Luke, as we've studied so far, we see that God has come in his kindness, and he has come to show favor on sinners like you and me. Not because we deserve it, but actually despite the fact that we deserve the opposite, his punishment and his condemnation. God, in his kindness, has shown favor on sinful humanity by coming himself in the person of Jesus Christ. God become man to show God's kindness and favor to sinners like you and me. And now we see Jesus, as we saw last week, calling for himself disciples. And now in our passage, he is declaring to these disciples a and cursings, declaring who it is that are blessed and who it is that are cursed. We'll find this morning that the, the list of characteristics of those that are blessed are very different than this hashtag blessed phenomenon. And the characteristics of those that are cursed are actually right in line with pray this morning as we look at Luke chapter 6 and verses 17 to 36 we would come to understand God's blessings in Christ as they really are. That we would find love and respond to Him as He calls us to. If you're taking notes, we'll be looking at chapter 6, verses 17 to 36. Our main point is this. Our main point is this. The blessed are loved. The blessed are are loved. And we'll be looking at it in two points. Point number one, verses 17 to 26, the disciples are blessed. And point number two, verses 27 to 36, the disciples are blessed, the disciples are loved. I pray that some of you this morning who are blessed and don't feel blessed would be encouraged and not discouraged you realize what it truly means to be blessed by God. And I pray that even some of you who may think that you are blessed and are deceived would come to realize where true blessing can be found. Let's begin with point number one, Jesus' blessing. Point number one, sorry, the disciples are blessed, verses 17 to 26. We'll begin the first part of our passage, verses 
17 and following. This is God's word. And he, that is Jesus, came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. This is an introduction to our section. Quickly, for context, in terms of what's come before, Jesus has begun his ministry to to be the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He is the Messiah, he declared, who has come to preach good news to the poor, who has come to declare the day of the Lord's favor. His ministry begins with great miracles, healing those that are sick, casting out demons, doing great miracles. And then teaching remarkable things about himself and about what it is that he's come to do. He has already found uh, opposition with the religious leaders who don't like him, who don't like his message. And are seeking already to try to do away with him, to try to kill him. And he has come, God become man as the Messiah, to declare a message of salvation and to himself to be. Lord's favored one, through whom all of God's blessings come. Look at here in our passage what Jesus has, is doing. He's just called to himself 12 disciples that he names apostles, leaders of his new covenant people, the church. Just like there were 12 tribes, 12 Jacob in the Old Testament who were the leaders of God's people. Now we have 12 disciples or apostles. And as Jesus comes down from the mountain... He now begins to heal. But do you notice that, that he, these people actually came to hear him is the first thing he lists. That is his message. And then also to be healed of their diseases. Jesus is demonstrating his authority that he has come from God. And that he has come to bring God's favor and blessing. And it isn't just words. He isn't just declaring these things to be so. He's proving it by his actions. He has already declared that he has the authority as God to forgive sins. And that he proves that he can do it by healing. He proves that he has authority even over Satan and over demons and over the spiritual realm. And he proves it by casting these demons out. And we see here, at the beginning of our section, before Jesus teaches the kinds of things that he's doing, displaying who he is. That he and he alone is God's truly favored one. He's going to go on and to declare, similar to what we heard in our reading this morning, those that are blessed and those that are cursed. He's talking about what God's new covenant people are to look like. But rather than giving them a list of things that they can't attain, he's actually describing what his disciples are to look like the kinds of people that they are to be. And the ones that are blessed should be surprising to us. Let's read next Jesus' declarations of those that are blessed, beginning in verse 20. And he, that is Jesus, lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, 
or yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. This passage is in contrast to then the cursings that are going to come in the following lines. Look down with me. There's a perfect parallel here. Those that are blessed and those that are cursed. The way that he declares those that are cursed is with this word, woe to you. Look at verse 24. In contrast with blessed are you who are poor, he says, woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. You see the contrast that's going on. Do you see the grand reversal that is happening? Jesus is actually declaring those who in this life are king. And their actual lack is that in the future they will have all of God's blessings. That is, in eternity, in the new heavens, in the new earth. But do you see that the things, the list of things that they lack, says that they're... When we read this, it sounds or can sound like he's saying that he is going to save all the poor people and that's it. If you're poor, you're heading to heaven. That would give them standing with God. How do we know that this is a spiritual thing? Well, Luke has already recorded in Luke 4, 17 and 18, Jesus reading the prophecy from Isaiah 61 and saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And who are the poor there? Well, it's those that realize their spiritual poverty, their need. You remember... A couple weeks ago, Luke 5, 31 and 32, Jesus said He hasn't come for those that are well, but those that are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see these images of being poor, of being sick, are metaphors for spiritual realities. You know, all of us are naturally, spiritually poor. What's being described here is what all of us experience being under Adam, in the fall, that this is what theologians call original sin. All of us, on our own, deserve God's punishment because we are sinners. God created us in His kindness. He created us good. He created us in His image in order to reflect something of what He's like. But the Bible says that we have rejected God's good and loving rule. And rather than enjoying His rich presence... We have instead walked away from him and sought to find our pleasure and our fullness everywhere else except for in God. As uh, the writer of Revelation talks about, we think, we may think in this world that we're rich, that we have prospered, that we need nothing. And yet Jesus says to this church, You don't realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This is who we are naturally, spiritually, before God. We are sinners, rebels, and not deserving His pity, but actually deserving His right and just wrath. But we tend to ignore this fact and try to pretend that we are fine, that we're not that bad, that in fact we're actually doing pretty well. But those that are 
Christ's true disciples realize their situation before God, that we are poor and we embrace it and we come to Him seeking in Him all that we need. Riches, kindness from God, not because we deserve it, for we don't, but ultimately because Christ does. We see here at the beginning of our section that Jesus is the blessed one. He is the one that actually experiences his Father's favor every moment of every day. He is the only man who came and lived a perfect life and was blessed in all that he did. When we think about what it means to be blessed, here he says, blessed are the poor. I wonder how we might even define what it means to be blessed. I think our definition is often too shallow. What it means to be blessed is something much bigger and much better. C.S. Lewis in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, says this. He says what blessing actually has to do with isn't what we think of God, but what God thinks of us. And this is a heavy thought. Blessing has to do with how God views us, with how He sees us. He says this, How God thinks of us is the most important thing about us. How we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how how he thinks of us. It's written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us, that any of us, shall actually survive God's examination, shall find approval, shall please God, you see, to be blessed is to be pleasing to God. And he goes on to say this. Imagine to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. How can people like you and me, sinners who are poor, sinners who are poor, blind, and naked, in need of of such help, actually be pleasing to God? The answer is we can never do this on our own. The answer is, as Lewis puts it, only possible by the work of Christ. You see that sinners like you and me can be blessed, can actually be pleasing to God only because Christ is pleasing to God. We can be pleasing to God only because of what He has accomplished for us. You see, He lived that perfect life that we didn't live. He died on the cross, a sacrificial death, in the place of sinners like you and me. And He did this, purchasing salvation, and actually taking our place so that we could be, by repentance and faith, by turning from our sin and trusting in Him, united with Him in such a way that when God sees you and me, if we trust in Christ, the same way that He sees His Son, God actually sees you and me as if He was looking at Christ His Son. And we can be truly blessed, truly pleasing to Him, because He doesn't count our record against us. He counts Christ's record for us. This is the remarkable thing about what the Bible has to say about being blessed by God. 
that we can truly be pleasing to him. Do you realize it's only through Christ? He goes on to talk about the other characteristics of his new covenant people. That they are blessed because they are poor. That realizing their spiritual poverty. Look then at verse 21. He says, you are blessed. Blessed are you who are hungry now. For you shall be satisfied. He's already talked about the fact that his people, his disciples, when he leaves, will fast. That when the bridegroom leaves, they will fast out of sadness for losing the bridegroom. And that they will now be in this position of thirsting and hungering for the feast that will one day come. God's people, Christ's disciples, are those that are hungry now. Those that desire something that nothing in this world can satisfy except for God, except for Christ, except for that day when we will be with Him. That the psalmists record in many places lines like this, My soul thirsts for God as the deer thirsts and pants for water, so my soul thirsts for God. Amos in Amos chapter 8 talks about an incredible famine. He says that the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread or thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. There is a famine coming when people will be desperate to hear from the Lord. This is the kind of hungering and thirsting that God's people are characterized by. A hungering and a thirsting for God and for His goodness, His righteousness. We are those who are not satisfied by anything that this world offers because the only thing that we know, those that are Christ's disciples, the only thing truly satisfying is God. He then says, Thirdly, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. He's quoting again from Isaiah 61, this prophecy of the Messiah who would come. He, he already read this in Luke chapter 4. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. He has sent me to comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. Those of us who are truly Christ's disciples are those that weep over sin. Those who weep over this world situation. Those that are sad because of the way that sin has so ravaged our world, our universe. We are those that weep knowing that one day when Christ returns, our weeping will be turned into uh, into laughing. That one day God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. See, it is not the sufficient. Those that are sufficient or think they are sufficient in themselves, who qualify to be Christ's disciples. It is the insufficient. It is those that that realize their need. It's not the strong and the capable, but those who recognize their incapability that are truly Christ's disciples. Do you see that the people who are truly blessed receive a reward? Poor receive God's kingdom. The hungry are truly satisfied. Those that weep and mourn shall laugh. Their reward is not stuff from God, but God Himself. 
more of Him, not more of His stuff. Not more of His cash, but more of Christ. I remember getting married, and I remember making wonderful vows to my wife, and I remember the part of the vows that everyone laughs at, where we uh, bequeath all that we have and all that we are to our spouses. All that I am and all that I have, I give to you. When I got married, I had some school debt. And my wife had a, a nice new car. Now, imagine us, imagine me, as we are getting married, taking pictures of the car and taking pictures of my, uh, my debt statement and posting those on social media and getting very excited about my wedding and my marriage because of the stuff that I got out of it, because of the material possessions that I received. What would you think of me if those were the first things that I posted on my Instagram after getting married? Here's my debt statement. And now someone to help me pay it. Hashtag blessed. (laughs) Here's my wife's car. A car that I didn't have. I was actually, I literally had no car when I got married. Hashtag blessed. C.S. Lewis in that same sermon says this. Talks about the kinds of rewards that are offered to Christians by God. He says there are different kinds of rewards. There is the reward which has no natural connection with the things that you do to earn it and is quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those things. Money, or possessions I could add, is not the natural reward of love. Money is not the natural reward of love. That is why we call a man mercenary or materialistic if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. Do you see what Lewis is saying? It is an evil thing to simply marry someone for their money. And we should feel shame for that person who simply marries for money. But, Lewis says, marriage is the proper reward for a real lover. And he is not mercenary or materialistic for desiring it. You see, the proper reward of marriage isn't the beloved stuff. It is the beloved him or herself. That is, when I got married, I didn't care if my wife had a car. The fact that she had it didn't change my desire to be married to her. In fact, if she was the one with the debt and I was the one with the car, it had no change in my mind about marrying her because in order, because in my mind, in marrying my wife, It wasn't the stuff that she had that I had in mind. It was her. And what I desired in marrying her was more of the relationship and love that we already had before marriage. The proper reward in getting married is more of the beloved one. And the same thing is true in our relationship with God. The reward for those of us who come into a relationship with God through Christ is not God's stuff. It isn't material blessings in this world. It's God. It's Christ. It's more of Him. Christ said in our previous passage that He's the bridegroom. And that as we come, that we are literally able to His feast and in His blessing. But the feast is actually the relationship that we enter into. The celebration of being united with our beloved one. Do you know what it means to be blessed? To be accepted by God? To be loved by God? The reward of that is more of God. 
Imagine, I think some of us might not have to imagine this, a child receiving a gift at Christmas and ripping off the paper and just being excited about the gift and not actually turning up the eyes to thank the giver, the parent. I think often we can think this way in the way that we relate to God and the way that we even pray. We think of God as if He's simply a vending machine to give us the things that we want. That our concern is simply with the stuff that God can give to us rather than realizing it is the relationship that is the thing that matters. That we delight in Him and nothing else will truly satisfy us. I wonder, Christian, are you delighting in your relationship with God? Let me encourage you to do it. Let me encourage you to draw near to God. Not in order to try to live right and get the stuff you want from Him. It's simply because you find in Him the ultimate reward. You find in relating with your Creator, your Savior, the greatest delight that you can experience in this life, a foretaste of what eternity will be like. I encourage you, Christian, draw near to your Savior. Draw near to your God and enjoy Him. The contrast is now, verses 24 and 25, woes, that is, curses to those who are rich. That is, those who are rich in this life. And they are cursed because though they are rich in this life, they've already received their consolation. And there will be no more. Woe to those who are full now, that is, satisfied with the things of this world. For one day you will go hungry. Woe or curse to you who laugh now. For eternity holds for you weeping and mourning. There will be a great reversal. An incredible reversal. And you see that what Jesus is saying is, for some, material prosperity is not a sign of His favor or pleasure. Material prosperity is actually a sign of God's displeasure. It's actually a sign that they are so disoriented in finding their satisfaction in this world and in the things of this world that it's proof that God has rejected them. It's proof that they don't know God at all. For if they knew God for who He was, they would reject everything else that this world has to offer if they could just have Him. If they could just be with Him. I hope this helps with our opening illustration of how we can think about hashtag blessed. How we can even evaluate what the things of this world mean. You know, we cannot do a a kind of one-to-one connection. Either on the one hand of saying, everyone that's poor is going to heaven. And everyone that's rich is going to hell. What we actually have to stand back and say is, there isn't a one-to-one correlation between poor now and rich then, or rich now and poor then. It's a little more complicated than this. For some people, though, those that are rich now will be poor forever. For others, those who know their spiritual poverty, you may be poor now, even for the rest of your life, and yet still be blessed by God, still be pleasing to God, regardless of those circumstances. And one day, enter into your rest and your joy forever. Let me encourage us as Christians to be careful of being judgmental of others' situations. Of discrediting people based on their material circumstances. Let me also encourage you, Christian, to not be discouraged based on your material circumstances. 
to not be discouraged thinking, what have I done wrong that God isn't giving me these material possessions that I desire or want? Let me encourage you to find Christ satisfying. To realize that He will give you the grace, if He asks it of you, to persevere even through a life of poverty in this world, knowing that it is only for a short time and eternity is forever. Jesus goes on to do something even more striking. He describes the kind of spiritual qualities that uh, accompany his people, those that are spiritually poor, those that are spiritually hungry, and those that spiritually mourn. He then goes on to describe that his blessedness, that is his pleasure in his people, is still there even when physical circumstances go south. If those circumstances go south on account of the Son of Man, he says. Look at verses 22 and 23. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. See what Jesus is saying. He's declared the kinds of spiritual qualities that his disciples have. Now he's describing situations that his disciples are going to go through. Some, perhaps more than others, but the kinds of difficult situations that Christ may ask his disciples to go through of being rejected by men, of being hated by men, of being excluded and reviled and spurned on account of Christ. And do you know what he's saying? Don't think that if you go through such persecution and difficulty, that you're doing something wrong and that you're not blessed. In actual fact, he's saying you are blessed when this happens to you. And in fact, when these very difficult things happen to you, you can see them not as a sign of failure or God's displeasure, but actually the opposite, a sign of his favor and pleasure. That He loves you so much that He is actually helping you to experience something of what Christ went through while He was here on earth. You remember in the book of Acts, the, uh, a couple of the apostles are called in for questioning because they killed someone. And they are then, it says in Acts 5, verse 40, they're then beaten. And then they are told, they're charged not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they are released. What did these apostles and disciples do? I wonder what you would do if this happened to you, if you were beaten for the sake of proclaiming the name of Christ. You know what it says that they did? Verse 41, they left the presence of the council rejoicing. They left the presence of the council rejoicing. And why were they rejoicing? Just been beaten? having just been persecuted for preaching Christ, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day did they stop preaching? Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Realize what these disciples did. They thought it was a sign of God's favor that he allowed them to experience something of what their Savior Christ experienced. Not all there is a suffering that only Christ could experience on our behalf. There is a suffering that only He could do in our place. 
but those of us that have been saved by Christ and saved by His suffering can actually find joy and rejoice if we get to experience something of what He went through because we love our Savior so much. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 says, I want to know Christ. I think if we're Christians, we should want to say the same. I want to know Christ. He's expressing his desire to know Christ even more. Do you know what he goes on to say? I want to know Christ, and I want to know the power of his resurrection. That sounds pretty good. I'd love to know the power of Christ's resurrection. But he wants to know Christ not only in the power of his resurrection, but also the fellowship of his sufferings. Whoa. The Apostle Paul doesn't just want to know Christ's power, though he wants to know that. He also wants to know what it's like to share in Christ's suffering. You see how flipped around this seems to our natural tendencies, how counterintuitive and how even countercultural it can be for us, even as Christians, to consider a, a blessing like this, that we would be blessed to experience persecution and suffering for the name of Christ, and that we should respond by rejoicing like the apostles that we've been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. As we consider application, I'm not sure what situation you find yourself in. It may be that you are right now experiencing persecution for the name of Christ. Perhaps it's in big ways. Perhaps you've been ostracized from family members because of your decision to follow Christ. To maybe leave the religion or the church of your parents. And you're dealing with some persecution. It may be smaller persecution. The kind of persecution of awkward, awkwardness in relationships at work or in your family or even with your neighbors. Having people think that you're crazy. To think that you're nuts. Or to think that you're evil. That you're a bigot. That you hate Others, because of your belief in Christ. You know, this isn't a sign that you're doing something wrong. It's actually a sign that you are blessed by God, that you get to fellowship with Christ and to share a little taste of his sufferings. Let me encourage you, Christian, to not lose heart or lose hope. Or be discouraged and give up to try to hide, to be a chameleon in this world. I think sometimes as Christians, we just want to be chameleons in this world. We just, we just want to blend in. Remember, a lot of my high school years spent spending as much energy as possible just trying to blend in. Just don't want to stick out. Don't want to get picked on. Don't want to get made fun of. Because Christians, we can do this. You know, we don't have that option. We will stand out if we are truly Christ's disciples. We will stand out like he stood out. But that doesn't mean in standing out and in finding this world and not the home that we would want it to be, that we are not by God. It's actually a sign that we are. And it's a sign that even though we aren't at home in this world, that we do have a home. We have a home in heaven in which we will one day be satisfied. Where there will one day no longer be such awkward situations or awkward conversations or difficulty or pain or crying or tears. Let me encourage you, Christian, one day all of this difficulty will one day be over. But persevere now. You will not be ashamed that you did. The contrast with those that are willing to go through such difficulty and are even able to rejoice in it 
is the contrast of those that refuse. He says the opposite of those that will be cursed. Look at verse 26. It's in parallel. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. In, in our devotions uh, with my kids, we were recently looking at the life of Jeremiah. Jeremiah had a difficult ministry in his uh, prophetic role. In the story we were looking at with our kids, the account of Jeremiah, the, the king brings Jeremiah in to try to figure out whether he should go to battle. And when Jeremiah gives a prophecy he doesn't like, he lets his counselors go throw him in a pit. They don't like this prophet because he's not telling them the things that they want to hear. And instead, they just keep their own counsel. Well, then eventually, he still is trying to figure out if he should go to battle. So then he pulls him out again. And Jeremiah says, why are you pulling me out again? You're not going to listen to me if I don't tell you what you like. He says, no, I will. And what does the king do? He doesn't listen. This is what happened to the prophets. They were rejected. When their didn't line up with what the itching ears of their people wanted to hear. And he says there are going to be those that are very much at home in this life who actually experience what seems like blessing. They're spoken well of. They're treated well. And yet, they are going to experience God's cursing forever. Let me encourage you if you're here and you're not a Christian. That these woes are not small things, but big things. These declarations of those that are cursed isn't simply talking about a more difficult life now. It's actually talking about God's punishment forever. What Jesus is declaring here about those that are satisfied in this world, those that are finding themselves at home in this world, they should not take consolation in that. Even if you feel you are living your best life now, if that's you, if you don't know Christ, if you haven't repented of your sins, if you haven't trusted in Him, if you haven't turned away from satisfaction in this world, Jesus says, woe to you that you are cursed. And Jesus isn't just some good teacher. No, He is God Himself become man. He's entered into our world and His declaration is true. His declaration must be heeded and the warning must be taken seriously. Let me encourage you to not rest until you find, not cursing. It's available for you in Christ. That's point number one. Point number one, disciples are blessed. Point number two, the disciples are loved. Jesus goes on now to give not a description of what it means to be blessed by God, But he now goes on to give commands to his disciples and to talk about how it is that they are to love. I'm going to read the whole section, verses 27 36. But I say to you who hear, this is Luke 6, 27 and following. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. 
If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. You see what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying something quite remarkable. If you look at the end of what He says in this section, He says, if you are Jesus' disciples, you are loved by God with an incredible love. If you are one of Christ's true disciples, you have been loved by God in an incredible way. You who were God's enemy, you who were in rebellion against Him and hated Him, you who had walked away from Him and sought to find your joy and satisfaction outside of His presence, that you are loved by God. God has loved you with an incredible and everlasting love. And He's done it in the face of your hatred and rejection. He's done it in spite of your sin and rebellion. You see what he then says is, you have been loved in an incredible way by God and by Christ. And now it is incumbent on you, if you have been loved in this way by God, to love in the same way. You see what Christ is saying here. He's saying, disciple, I have loved you in an incredible way. You see that Jesus did all of the things that he's calling us to do as his disciples. Look at verse 27. Jesus loved his enemies. You know, he did that throughout his ministry as he declared truth even to those who hated him. He says, do good to those who hate you. Jesus did this. He loved even those that hated him. He says, verse 28, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. What did Jesus do on His way to the cross when He was being abused, when He was being beaten, when He was being mocked? He prayed for His murderers. He declared to God, He prayed for them. My God, He said, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. He Not only that, as he was struck on the cheek, as he was struck literally on the cheek, he turned the other one. As they literally took his clothes away, he stripped him of his clothes, cast lots for them and took them away. He gave it willingly, did not demand them back. Jesus literally loved his enemies as he went to the cross. And not just the enemies there, the ones that actually physically killed him, the enemies that are you and me. He loved us this way. He isn't calling us to do some great thing that he hasn't himself done. No, he's saying, you need to follow in my footsteps. You need to love as I have loved. Jesus says in John 13, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Do you see what Jesus is saying? You must love as I loved. I did 
first. I blazed the trail. You need to follow in my footsteps. Not to earn your salvation, but to prove that you are truly my disciples. To prove that you know that you are truly loved by me. That you have been loved by me. Now go and do the same. You see, it is those of us who know that we are loved in this incredible way that can do the same. John, in 1 John, says, by this that we know that we are in Him. That is, we know that we are in Christ, that we are Christians. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That is, we are to follow in His footsteps, to love as He loved. And then he says this, I'm writing you no new command, but an old command that you had from the beginning. And then he says, but at the same time, it's a new command that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. What is John saying? He's saying you need to love like Christ loved. And this isn't a new command. It's an old command. We always had the command to love our neighbor. We always had the command to love the stranger, to love those around us, even to love those who were unlovely. But it's a new command now. Why is it a new command? Because Christ demonstrated it to us in the most incredible way by actually doing it himself. It's a new command because it isn't just, oh, love people. Though that's true and good and right. No, we need to now love people like Christ loved people. And who did Christ love? Did he love the lovely? Did he love those who were nice to him? Did he love those who loved him according to his love language? No, he loved his enemies. He loved those who hated him. This is what Christ has done in loving us. He's loved his enemies. And now he calls us who truly know him and have been loved by him in this incredible way to go and do the same. Now, what does this mean for us practically? Let's, uh, let's get specific. I'll start big picture. If we are called to love even our enemies, and if that is the pinnacle and the peak of the kind of Christ-like love that we're called to, and we're called to that, there are lots of lesser ways that we should be loving people that aren't nearly as difficult as that. Do you know, sometimes we read this and we know what Christ is calling us to do. And we can find it difficult just to love our spouses who love us back. This means for us that we need to love our spouses, husbands and wives, even when they are unlovely, even when they don't treat us the way that we would want to be treated. That we actually get to imitate Christ by loving our grouchy spouses and being kind to them, even when they aren't kind to us or we don't feel that they're loving us the way that we would want them to. You know what this means for us as we learned this morning as parents. We need to be loving our children even when they are annoying. Even when they are rebellious. Even when they disrespect us. That we are to be imitating Christ by loving the unlovely. Because that's how Christ loved us. Let me encourage you young people. Perhaps you're at school Perhaps you're interacting with siblings or extended family. I wonder how you treat the people around you. Do you do it like I often want to do it? Treating them as they're treating you? To just respond in kind? Do you know Christ didn't do that for you? 
He didn't respond in kind to you. No, he loved you even when you were hateful to him. Let me encourage you to do the same, to be kind to those around you, even if they aren't being kind to you. This also means in the church that we should be loving those that perhaps we find difficult to love rather than withdrawing from those that are hard for us to relate to or perhaps awkward for us to be around. Rather than withdrawing from awkward situations, we should press in. We should be willing to love those that are even different from us. That we should be loving the way that Christ does because is there anyone more different to Christ than we were? This also means that we should be loving in ways that cross all kinds of barriers, whether it's age, whether it's ethnicity or cultural background, whether it's situation in life, whether it's married, married with kids, single, widowed, widower, divorced. That we should be loving across these boundaries and loving the way that Christ does in a countercultural, counterintuitive way. But even more than that, it also means loving our enemies. I wonder who you would classify as enemy this morning. Who is that person? When you think, my enemy, who is it? Do you know Christ has called you to love that person? Regardless of how cruel or mean or unfeeling or unkind that person has been to you, Christ has called you to respond in love. And the only way that we can do something so incredible is not through big-heartedness, humanitarianism. can only come by understanding the way that we've been loved in Christ. You see there at the end, verse 35, he says, You will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. This idea of being a son of God, of being a son in Scripture, is a lot closer to an older mindset. My father grew up on a dairy farm in upstate New York, and his dad was the sixth generation Barris farmer on the same farm. And from one generation to the next, the son did what the father did. You didn't decide your vocation based on what you wanted to do. You became a farmer because that's what your father was. My father was the first generation to say to his dad, I don't want to be a farmer. And so his dad sold the farm and walked away from it. Do you see what Christ is saying that we get to be in loving in this way? We get to be like our Father. We get to actually imitate our Father. We get to be like Him. We get to be His sons if we love in this way. We literally get to reflect and to be like our Father who loved us with an incredible, counterintuitive love. Let Let us all be excited with the opportunity He gives us to imitate Him, to follow in Christ's footsteps, to love like He's loved us. said this morning as we began, are you blessed? Are you living the hashtag blessed life this morning? I hope that this passage reorients for us a definition of what it means to be blessed. That the ultimate blessing is to be loved by God and to be accepted by God in Christ. And that we would pursue this life with eyes towards the next, not simply towards living our best life now, but desiring to be with God forever and with Christ. 
and satisfied throughout all eternity. Let's, all of us, aim towards that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we give you praise that your blessed people are loved by you. How incredible. Sinners like us could be blessed by such a good God. That you could treat us the way that you treat your son Christ through his life and death for us. We pray that we would know that we're blessed, not based on material circumstances, but based on what Christ has done for us. We pray that we would know that we're loved and then be able to love like Christ has loved us in more and more profound ways and even perhaps more and more costly ways. We pray that you would be doing this for us, for your glory, until the day that Christ returns and all of our desires are satisfied in him. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. For those of us who are blessed, we can say with our closing hymn, all I have is Christ. If I have Christ, I have everything I need. Let's stand and sing this hymn together.